Hello and welcome back to this episode. I believe it's our 12th episode in this season um, of this podcast, Sabbath School from Home. So glad that you have decided to join us for the next half an hour or so as we continue to discuss uh, life after death. Uh, what's the official title of this quarter lock? Um, I've got it here. On Death, Dying and the Future Hope. Death, Dying and the Future Hope. Uh, my name's Cameron. And I'm Luke, and I can never remember in which order we're supposed to do this. Yeah, we always get a bit thrown when Ken isn't here. Ken can't join us for this episode, or at least uh, hasn't yet been able to. And I hear that's because he's preparing many pizza bases for a for a pizza church that is to happen. Mm. Um, and I just wish... I'm Lachlan, and I'm not down in Tasmania where Ken is, and that's a shame, because I just wish that I could go there tomorrow and consume churchly pizzas with him. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Ken calls this, it happens about once a month and he calls it pizza church and we all go there uh, for lunch on Sabbath and he has a, a wood-fired pizza oven uh, but I have told him that in the future I am simply going to refer to it as church and I'll refer to the weekly service in, in the building there at Launceston as church without pizza <laughs> uh, so um, that's that's where I stand uh, I'm a little technologically challenged um for this recording, I retreat out to my den and usually use the data on my phone because my home internet doesn't extend to the den. And uh, that gives me a bit of sound isolation from my uh, very uh, often cheerful but nonetheless noisy uh, children. Uh, but my phone is at the bottom of a lake because I went sailing and had it in my pocket and tipped the boat over. Um, so we'll see how this goes and whether I cut in and out of the recording. Right. Well, the title for this week's discussion um, intrigued me. It's it's the biblical worldview, and I always get a little bit of a giggle out of the use of the definite article there, the biblical worldview, um, because it, it does occur to me upon a more or less cursory reminiscence about the Bible itself that there, there may even be more than one worldview being reflected at various points throughout uh, uh a longish collection of texts that span a fairly wide range of times, peoples, and cultures uh, over their over their authorings. So you, you, let's explore you're being the very polite biblical and worldview. There, Within the Bible, very frequently in one verse, there are more than one biblical worldview expressed. <laughs> I think you're well, probably I'll, right. I'll throw in my two cents worth. I would, I, I would find it very hard to believe in the Bible as God's divine word to actual people if it didn't contain more than one worldview. Because if you've ever tried to talk to someone and have a discussion where the premise for the discussion you realise halfway through is completely different. Um, a trivial example of this is the, the comedian Michael McIntyre hopped into a taxi once in Ireland at a time when there was a criminal on the loose in England and a penguin which had escaped from a zoo in Ireland. And the taxi driver said to him, "Oh, do you think do you think they'll catch him?" <laughs> and Michael McIntyre said, "Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he's been gone a few days now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's a survival expert. Oh, yes, a survival expert. Uh, poor fellow. Poor, poor fellow. What do you mean he murdered his wife?" Um, and the, there's a great comedic interchange that happens. Um, but if if you are ever talking to someone and then you suddenly realise afterwards that you were listening to the same words, but 
it obvious it's obvious in retrospect that the person you were talking to interpreted them completely differently. Um, then then God must have a problem, mustn't he, if he's trying to talk to us? Mm. And there's different people with with different personalities and levels of education and historical and socioeconomic backgrounds and ethnic groups and even language groups because language we speak affects a lot about the way we think um, and controls a lot of, of how we think. If if God is dealing with such a diverse group of people, it would be remarkable. I'm just thinking from the point of view of a teacher. It would be remarkable if he was not able to adapt his message to the extent that it would then become intelligible to people living in different worldviews. All right. Well, that is a perfect lead-in to the the story from the Bible that I think we should turn to, and it's in Acts chapter ten, and this is this is part uh, the early part of Acts contains a whole lot of little vignettes, little episodes that are representative of the dramatic spread of the message of Jesus and of his resurrection, um, and so this is this is the one where Peter. The apostle goes to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, um, and the chapter opens with an account of um, the uh, uh, a message from an angel uh, to this to this Cornelius. Uh, but we're going to pick the story up the next day, which is in verse nine of Acts chapter ten, and we'll read verses nine to twenty nine. Um, I might start, and then, um, Luke, why don't you take over and read it to the end, because Cam's stuck there without his, um, without his internet. The next day, as Cornelius's messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. All sorts of pizza. <laughs> all sorts of pizza. Yeah, maybe this was, that's it. Seafood pizza. There was, there was, the, there was seafood pizzas. There was the Domino's, f- as much meat as we can stuff onto a very thin and cheese-stuffed piece of pastry yeah. pizza. There was, there was the lot. Yeah, that's it. That's it. There could have Salami. even been... It could have even been the plant-based vegan pizza, although it is the animals and reptiles and birds that are the key feature in this in this yeah. verse. Um, it was lizard pizza, lizard pizza, and crocodile pizza. Yeah, and, probably and pig pizza. pizza. Yeah, well, that's right because the as I'll pick back up in verse thirteen. Then a voice said to him, "Get up, Peter, kill and eat them." No, Lord, Peter declared, "I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean." So, uh, just another aside. Clearly, the issue here is the is the uncleanliness uh, of these animals in a ceremonial sense. Uh, resuming in verse fifteen, but the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you are looking for. Why have you come? 
They said, We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, Stand up! I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside, where many others were assembled. Peter told them, You know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this, or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. Yeah, excellent. So that's verse 29. We'll end there. The, the story has a really fun twist there because it goes. Cornelius gives an account of, um, of having seen his own vision um, and, and it, they all sort of come to an understanding. And of course, the story does end not only with Cornelius and his household being baptized, but explicitly receiving the Holy Spirit at the end of the chapter. And of course, it's a, it's a great story. And it's a really important story in the trajectory of the church opening up. And Cam, this is exactly what you were saying in your remarks a moment ago. God's message seems to be relevant to a diversity of well, cultures, look, on, of peoples. On that point, there's you, you summarized the, the conclusion of the story very well, but there's, there is a, another verse that I want to read. Um, three verses, actually. May as well do it. Um, it's 34 to 36. Um, yep go for it then peter replied i see very clearly that god shows no favoritism in every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right this is the message of good news for the people of israel that there is peace with god through jesus christ who is lord of all Mm -hmm. yeah excellent verses i i I love this story personally i i really um I, i return to it uh every so often because it's it's a really powerful reminder of pretty much exactly that point luke but here's the problem um what does this story teach us about a the biblical worldview and b perhaps more importantly the importance of maintaining a biblical worldview doesn't teach us anything about those things next question no, I'm not sure. I think it. <laughs> no, it teaches us the biblical worldview is one where it's okay to eat snakes and lizards. <laughs> well, because so, this story is in the Bible. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, very, very well done. Cam. No, just in case look... anyone is unclear, Cam is not being serious. And I, well, yeah, if you look very carefully, the the in verse <laughs> in verse sixteen after the third repeat of the vision. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Uh, Peter, although he'd been invited to eat, was never given actually a logistical chance at trying. Well, hey, so, but uh, I want to I want to make a point that we have talked in previous podcasts about how parables and visions and stories are not literal, um, and I mm. think it's it's only very fair that we apply the same thing. This is clearly not about eating food. That was a metaphor for yes for how yes. he treats uh non-jewish people and and who he associates with yeah and and it was a very clear metaphor and the verse that you the verses you read then at the end luke make it very clear to us as a reader that the that the realization of the meaning of the metaphor was 
like Peter ex- clearly expresses the the intent of this metaphor. He's understood it by yeah. the end of the story, and so uh, and so we should also understand it. Getting back to your question, though, look, I think the direction in which um, you were leading us and where it's the obvious direction to move in is that for Peter, being careful about what you ate was very much part of a very well-defended biblical worldview. Yeah, yeah. So was, so was not associating with pagans going into their houses. Yeah. Um, so, so it seems here that, that Peter is being challenged to step outside his biblical worldview. Well, exactly. No, so let me, and I don't want to get too distracted. L- last week, we ended up, um, I think, getting legitimately, uh, but perhaps slightly uncharacteristically hot under the collar uh, about the phrasing of one particular part of the lesson. So we don't need to get too wound up about it. But I I just want to read a few parts from um, the, the Wednesday uh, lesson uh, of this week, because they jump out at me. Um, in this co- context of this discussion, this observation that we're making. So um, the the lesson recounts the uh, a number of different things. It gets to the point of saying, this means that the Holy Spirit never guides anyone away from God's word, which he himself inspired, but rather always leads us into conformity to that word. And I actually think I agree with that. But this goes deeper, right? Because conformity with the word might not be conformity with our present understanding of the word. So guide us, guiding us into conformity with the word might just be another way of saying guides us into a better interpretation of or a deeper understanding of. Um, and and yeah, the, well, the, look, I've the, got something to say about something about that. Um, you couldn't read the Old Testament admonitions against eating meat with blood in it and which meat you're allowed to eat and which you're not and say that Peter's vision was not against the word as he knew it that the Holy Spirit was certainly guiding Peter away from the word as he had been taught Mm. yes I think that's a really important point and I think we have to be very careful not to consider ourselves um, less fallible than the disciples mm. and less prone to error and less teachable. I mean, we should aspire to be this, as teachable as the disciples. This this makes me think of the discussion last week, which I very much enjoyed editing, and I was sorry I couldn't be there. I enjoyed what you guys said about the false dichotomy introduced between the teachings of Christ and the person of Christ. Um, and as one of my favourite online cartoonists uh, said... Uh, we have to embrace false dichotomies because the only alternative is cannibalism. <laughs> uh, so, um, so a good false dichotomy is okay, all well and good. But what if we took that division here? What if we said, hang on, the Holy, does the Holy Spirit lead us towards or away from the word is an emphasis on the teachings as they're written down by God's prophets and inspired people. Um, does the Holy Spirit ever lead us away from God? That's much easier. It's much easier. No, the Holy Spirit never leads us away. Yeah, I, I mm. think... And as a person, and if you if you took the slightly poetic but very beautiful introduction to the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, that's a really serious reframing to the Jewish people who have for centuries dedicated themselves to the preservation of these stories 
Um, and what John is saying is, well, the, the, the word of God is all very well and good. And it's nice that we're so concerned about it. But do you realize that the word is a person? In the beginning was the word and he was with God and, and was God. And so w- when we're being called to stay true to the word, we are being called to stay true to the person of God. And it seems that God sometimes changes his mind. Mm. You, you know, I, I, whenever we talk more about the details of the, the Sabbath school lesson and what the lesson says and the way it says it, the more I feel like they're fighting a battle with a... And a, 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 I hesitate to use the word imaginary... But they're they're fighting a battle against something which I really can't conceive actually existing. Does if that makes any sort of sense? They're always making these arguments against a point of view. You know, as as in last week, this this artificial distinction between the person and teachings of Christ. Right? Hmm. They're opposing that point of view. But I've never heard that view expressed anywhere except by the Sabbath school lesson. So they both set up the enemy and then fight against it. But the enemy is not being promoted by anybody else. I've I've never heard another Christian sect or any other religion or anybody in any capacity um, ever express as, as perceived truth the views that the lesson purports to oppose. So who are they fighting against? Well, uh, it's a good question, Luke. Um, it, this, here's a follow-up question that, that might be the same question in a slightly different form. Uh, if we were to receive a message from God which said, I have noticed your church potlucks, and you're being very careful about what you serve, which is nice. Um, there's uh, no pork. Uh, there's uh, some um, effort to be healthy, at least until the desserts come out. And uh, that's all very well and good. But I've also noticed that there's just no one coming to them except people who are already at church. Hmm. What I'd like you to do is put on a barbecue in the parking lot with real sausages, the meatiest, meaty sausages you can get. And I want the smell of frying to go all over the neighbourhood. And I want people to turn up to see what's going on. And I want you to feed them with beef burgers and pork sausages and salami and you know whatever else uh because i want you to talk to them uh if we receive that message from god would i was going to say would the writers of the lesson but i'm going to rephrase it would you and i say to god oh i'm not quite comfortable doing that but if you say so well uh, I, I, must, I must confess cam the, the very hardest part of the scenario you just described is the talking bit I'm on board with everything else, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 as a, well, yeah. a highly introverted person, that part scares me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, that's the real question, isn't it? Because if if we because we we maintain our our diet message is a, is part of a grows from our biblical worldview, and just as Peter did. Uh, so what would we do mm. if it was us who got the vision of the animals? So I, I reckon it might be handy at, at this point to point out some specific, the, 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 um, the implications of some specific elements of this story that, that are very interesting. Um, 
because we haven't really talked about the detail of it, and I do love the detail of this story, and I don't think it's coincidental that the writer has described certain events the way he has. Um, and just as a fun footnote to that, it's interesting that Peter was apparently having some sort of hunger trance when he had his vision of all the forbidden things to eat. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a coincidence. Um, <laughs> so... Before Peter understands the vision, um, he's still puzzling about the food aspect of it, perhaps. Um, the Holy Spirit tells, to him, tells him there's three people who've come, um, go, and you, you should go with them uh, without mm. hesitation. Um, and when he gets down, he discovers that they're Gentiles because they were sent, they were their servants or slaves or, or what have you, of, or messengers of Cornelius, who is Roman, who is a Gentile. Um, they say he's devout and God-fearing and respected by the Jews, um, and that an angel has talked to him. Um, Peter immediately invites the men to stay for the night. So even though he doesn't know, he hasn't, I don't think, you know, he grasps later on, he says, I see very clearly God shows no favoritism. But he's all, he's all, he's obedient, even though he hasn't fully grasped mm. it. I think inviting the Gentiles in, it means eating with them and having them stay the night at his house. Mm. That is breaking Jewish custom. That is th certainly breaking, certainly contrary to their biblical yes, worldview. Yes, that is absolutely contrary to their biblical worldview. Uh, uh, of you know, in terms of what is appropriate behaviour for a devout, clean Jew. Um, so he invites them into his home and eats with them. I mean, that's what you. I, I, I'm you know, I'm not an expert on ancient Mediterranean cultures, but I'm pretty sure inviting people into your house means giving them food. Giving them your mm. food, right? So he gives them his food. Then he goes to Cornelius's house the next day, along with some other Jews. I, I'm assuming that's who the brothers from Joppa are. Um, and Cornelius's servants. And they go to Cornelius's house. And he's got all his friends and relatives there. Um, and Cornelius worships him. And Peter says, I'm just a person, don't do that. Um, and then explains why he has come without objection. Um, and then Cornelius tells the story of what he was doing. Then Peter says those verses that I read. Um, and then, where well, I'm looking for, I've just missed a bit. Um, oh, yeah, it's in verse 28, which we read. Um, Peter told him, you know it is against our law for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this. So Peter has mm. gone into his home. Peter is going to eat with him mm. if he hasn't already. Mm. And, and it's mm. not explicitly stated um but well no actually it is explicitly stated after peter gave orders for them to be baptized cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days yeah right mm. so this is not just about the theological or doctrinal understanding of gentiles are part of the kingdom of god too this is actually changing behavior this is impacting the way people are treating other people Right, they are going to each other's houses and and breaking bread together, um, which is a almost universal human symbol of, you know, unity and friendship and and goodwill. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's quite likely that Peter did in fact um, eat meat that was unclean. Well, he would have eaten what Cornelius's household provided, because that now Cornelius was sympathetic to the Jews, so Cornelius might have made some allowance, but. 
uh, for Peter, but he certainly there would have been food at the table. And, and he, even the, if Peter I mean, didn't the eat point it. is that any food provided by Gentiles, whether or not it was yes, it was unclean according to the laws of Leviticus, was still unclean because it was provided by Gentiles. So in that mm. sense, it's not really. I mean, I think the point is it's not relevant whether or not he. It's not relevant what Peter ate. He probably, yeah. he, you know, yeah, yeah, he yeah. may have eaten something when he was with Cornelius that he didn't eat before and he wouldn't eat again afterwards. You know, he would have kept his preferences and habits and yeah. culture and custom. But he had learned not to make that a, a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? He had learned not to... He chose not to be a, he chose not to be a stumbling block. To Cornelius, to use the a, a figure of speech employed yeah. by Paul. What, what I'm trying to say is he, he he learned not to use the the custom of eating only clean food, according to Jewish tradition, as a way of um, considering Jews to be superior to others. He, he may have continued that custom as his custom and something that he believed to be a good thing to do, but he didn't use it to make himself feel superior to others. And he didn't see yeah. it as an obstacle to others being part of the kingdom of God, which he obviously did mm. before, right? So, in other words, he learned to be less judgmental. It's an interesting point, Luke, and it takes, uh, at least in my mind, the discussion in, in a direction that I had wanted to go. Um in our pre-recording discussion, you pondered, Luke, uh, how, what's the difference between a, sort of an, the essential parts of our faith and the cultural parts of our, of our faith and the way in which we express our faith? Uh, the way in which we express our faith in the Adventist church is demonstrably different from the Old Testament church where there was much clashing of symbols and blaring of trumpets and where sheep were killed twice a day. So, um, so... Different again to the New Testament church meeting in people's houses. To you know, there's even within the Bible, there, there's lots of different expressions of of people's faith. In terms of culture, there's an interesting anecdote I have. Um, every now and then, I get called to do a relief class at the school where I teach for English, and they get the grade nine girls to study Pride and Prejudice uh, because the, for English at the school where I teach, the boys and girls are separated into classes. On, based on gender, so the girls all have English classes together and the boys have English classes together, basically because, on average, the groups prefer to study different texts. Um, although it doesn't always work out. Bit of a shame because Pride and Prejudice people is, want. is brilliant for anybody. It's to wonderful. Read. What's amazing is these young girls don't get it. Almost none of them get it. And I say to them, oh, you're studying Pride and Prejudice. I really like Pride and Prejudice. And they look at me like I'm from Mars. I say, I've got a question for you. Is Pride and Prejudice traditional in its views of the women's place in society or progressive? Oh, it's traditional. So traditional. All the women are always having to do what they're told by the men and um, the, you know, why the, it's the man's job to the propose. The character of the book is famous oh. for not doing anything that the men tell her to do. Well, this is, this is, this is what I, I point out to them. It's a defining um, character I trait. said, okay. I say, okay, so does the, does the book on the whole endorse that position or make fun of it? Ah, oh, uh, well, it definitely makes fun of it. Uh, who are all the characters in there that are movers and shakers? You know, a huge proportion of them are women. And not only that, um, Elizabeth comes to a, for her time, absolutely startling resolution. She resolves it would be better to be unmarried than 
to be forced to marry someone just for family connections and status and wealth. And the concept of living a fulfilled life, of there being a fulfilled life for a woman outside marriage and having kids um, and doing whatever your husband tells you was super radical. And it's not just in Pride and Prejudice. In every single one of Jane Austen's books, the main character is a female and at some point the main character resolves not to get married unless she actually cares for her husband-to-be. So so it is very subversive of the culture of her time, of, of, of the day. And, and anyone who reads it with any vague sense of history sees the fun that Jane Austen is poking at, at some of these traditional gender roles and, and sees in it a very strong and very progressive message. My students do not see it. They, they, they you know, well, two or three students in the class can see it, but most of them, most of them don't, don't see it. So, um, maybe you'd have better luck with the boys, Ken. Yeah, well, maybe. Did did Jane Austen um, ascribe to the dominant worldview of her time? Is a really difficult question to answer because, on one hand, yes. I mean, there is lots in there that is. Um, well, when you say ascribe, you can't conflate that with the setting of the book. She sets her book in her time. This is just yeah. turning into a book club. Well, but I'm here for it. No, no, no. Okay. Well, I'm going to move it to the New Testament. Does Paul ascribe to the culture of his time? Well, he tells wives to obey their husbands. Now, I think he meant that literally. I think if you'd asked Paul, Paul would have nodded his head and said, yes, I actually do think that wives should obey their husbands. So he, in one sense, he genuinely endorsed that point of view. He said to slaves, obey your masters. Was that tongue-in-cheek? No, I actually think he really expected slaves to obey their masters. But he flips both of those on their heads with an addition. He says, wives, obey your husbands. Now, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. He gave his life for the church. So who has the greater... uh, On whom is the greater responsibility placed or the greater onus or the greater amount of servitude placed? Well, wives have to obey their husbands, but... Uh, husbands have to love their wives to the point of giving up their own life for, for their wife. Uh, that's a much greater commitment that he's demanding from the husbands. And what about the um, slaves and the masters? Slave, uh, uh, slaves obey your masters because when you obey them, you're obeying Christ. But masters, remember that we're all slaves, um, but for what Christ has done for us. And we are all recipients of his grace. And so treat your servants well. And your slaves well. So, does Paul um, does Paul ascribe to the contemporary worldview in which he lived? Well, yes, and no, and this is why it's very difficult to talk about a biblical worldview, because mm. the Bible simultaneously is is couched very firmly in cultures and times and specific people's level of education and knowledge of the world, um, and yet at the same time. It's an incredibly radical document. So this perhaps brings us a little closer to a cl- concluding sort of remark. This is a this is a thought that's on my mind a bit, which is perhaps one of the most defining elements of the various biblical worldviews that we can find is their transience, is the idea that when in when connected to god we should in fact be expecting to learn new things 
I think this is actually one of the ways that many Christians deal with passages in the Old Testament that are extremely distasteful with with violence against children and uh, seemingly endorsed by God. Um, you know, wars, conquests, genocides, uh, you know. Um, one of the ways we deal with that is by saying to ourselves, wow, but, but we actually have, that was only a partial revelation. We have a better revelation, um, you know, through the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. And then we come to passages like the Bible, like the New Testament's perspective on slavery, for example, and we, and we then say very similar things over again, like you've just done, Cam. We, we realize, well, there is a culture in which this is being written, and there's only so many steps you can take at once. And we see the Spirit of God moving on these apostles and, um, and authors and leaders in the church and moving them in a direction but there's only so far they can go, um, you know, and and it's natural for us to, to to feel that with the benefit of more time and more immersion in the way of God through his spirit, that we've reached a different perspective on slavery to that which was obtained in the, uh, you know, the years, the, the time period over which the New Testament was written. And so if that's true, if there's some element in which the the growing in truth. Even our Adventist tradition historically has this emphasis on the idea of present truth, the idea that there is that there is truths that are current and that that in into which we are currently growing. Um, I think C.S. Lewis. I'm sure you could find me a quote. We 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 don't need to go and and search too hard, but but this seems resonant to me uh, not just within the Adventist tradition, but more broadly. And here's an here's an interesting detail from the Sabbath school lesson. So after some of the passages, some of the statements that I've already quoted, um, it finishes with with this question: Why is it so important, morning after morning, to pray ourselves into an openness to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives? That's a pretty interesting, unnerving and powerful question, isn't it? Because it's it's actually, when you honestly engage with it, it's upending the more easily stated reliance on, on biblicalness of a worldview. And it's saying, actually, the thing that we really need to be praying that we're open to is the Holy Spirit's leading. Now, if the Holy Spirit is leading, then we're going somewhere, and it might not be the same place that we currently are now. So we sort of should expect change. That's that's mm. a really powerful idea in the context of of a sort of religious tradition. I like it a lot. Uh, in the interests of keeping our, our podcast sub forty minutes, uh, I'm going to draw a line and say that that's uh, that's the end of this discussion. At least the end, as far as we're concerned at this stage, but our listeners, if they have any thoughts they'd like to share with us or thoughts they would like us to share on the podcast, um, are welcome to e- email those thoughts to us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And uh, we enjoy the comments we get and we enjoy contact with people who listen to this podcast. Uh, it's a slightly asymmetric way to participate in the discussion, but we're anxious uh, to, to hear what you, our dear listener, uh, thinks and, and uh, uh, where you think this discussion has, has taken you. Uh, please feel free to share this podcast with anyone who you feel would benefit and join us again next week.